Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to the people who work behind the scenes at sporting events. This episode features a conversation with British freelance sports writer Simon Cambers. Simon's written for a myriad of outlets in his career, including Bloomberg, Reuters, The Guardian, The Times, and ESPN.com. Early in his career, Simon often was writing advice columns for gamblers. So I wanted to ask him what we in the U.S. need to know about sports betting. You need to know that it's nothing to fear. Taking up freelancing is itself a bit of a gamble. The transition from being a full-time sports journalist into being freelance is, is scary. As a freelancer, he is often writing for multiple outlets on a given day. And at events such as a tennis grand slam, over the two-week run, he will write up to 60 or 80,000 words. I always think about grand slams as a freelancer. It's a, it's a very strange situation that by the time you get to the weekend, finals weekend, semis, finals, that should be the time when you're writing your best stuff. It's the best matches. It's the best part of the tournament. The players are absolutely going for it. You know, it could be pieces of history being made. And you are just willing it to be over. Because <laughs> you're exhausted. Simon also explains how he views having not studied journalism as a university student is an asset. I always thought that having a grounding in another more general area was good for being a sports journalist. Because I, you know, you sort of, yeah, maybe I'm being a bit sort of pious about all this stuff, but... It's if you only know sport and you only talk about that, you can't bring anything from outside your life into your writing. So the more that you have from outside, that's the advice I would always give to someone who wants to be a journalist. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for the show notes that includes links with more information on many of the things we discussed during this podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Simon Cambers on Credentials Only. Simon, thanks for joining us today from the southern coast of England. What is the role of sport in your country? Well, what a question. It is uh, it's huge. And, I mean, it's integral, really, in, in our country. I don't think you can separate the two. And it, and it goes back centuries with horse racing, you know, which was associated with the royal family. And, you know, really from then on, it's been – well, in fact, you can, go, you can go way further back. You go back with golf – uh, founded in Scotland and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely part of daily life. I heard somebody on the radio yesterday talking about how they'd stopped drinking so much since, uh, since the, the pandemic came along because all his drinking was in the pub watching football. <laughs> uh, and there's no football, soccer to watch anymore. So he's, he's sort of cut down. He feels pretty good about himself. And then he was asked if, he was, if he'd missed it. And he said, yes. <laughs> so in in the u.s you know the super bowl is kind of the the top thing and, and live sport is huge and i think 92 of the top 100 televised programs in 2019 were live sport but football definitely leads the pack but even the super bowl which has over 100 million viewers it's only a third of the country it doesn't stop down necessarily everyone everywhere yeah, uh, for that one game, and that's just the one game. The rest of the season certainly doesn't get that traction. So while it does very well, it isn't a nationwide phenomenon. I get the sense it's a little bit different, though, in your country, especially when Team England's playing for something. 
Yeah, it's, it is a little bit different. I think the numbers are probably quite equivalent. Uh, I think for a massive, massive England football match in the World Cup, for example, you're looking at about, if, you, if you're really lucky, into the sort of mid-teens millions watching, which is probably a third to a quarter of, of the population in terms of who can watch a TV. Um, but that doesn't necessarily take account of all those people watching it together, um, you know, watching it in pubs, watching it in the street. So I think they're pro- the, pro- the numbers are probably higher. Yeah, an England, an England football game would be huge. Uh, a big event like a Grand National horse racing, which is the biggest uh, jumps race in the, in the calendar, which usually happens around this time, actually. Um, that's massive. Um, and then other things like the FA Cup final, which is the biggest football cup final, also gets big, big viewers, as does the, uh, or as do the two Wimbledon finals, which often get around 10 million, 11, 12 million, which is, which is pretty impressive for a sport like tennis, which is fairly marginal. It, although had some competition last year with cricket. Yeah. Made for a, a pretty fantastic championship Sunday at, at Wimbledon. Yeah, that and, was an unbelievable day, wasn't it? I mean, we were watching both at the same time. And, you know, the, certainly for English fans, watching the cricket happening, the way it unfolded, winning the World Cup on the same day as Federer was almost beating Djokovic. Djokovic saved those match points. That was a pretty amazing day. But I think you're right. It, it is certainly a part of of being British is, is sport is definitely very high up on a lot of people's, uh, I don't know what, you know, the, the things that they rely on to get them through the week. I suspect that that being ingrained the way it is had something to do with how you pivoted from studying at university government and sociology to postgraduate work in uh, news writing and journalism. Yeah. I, uh, I've, when I was in the last year at university, I was sitting at home one day thinking, I think I'll be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. I quite like getting up and arguing in front of people, talking about stuff, you know, defend my position. And then almost the next day I thought, no, what am I talking about? I, I, I'd never really considered journalism until that point. Um, although that can't really be true because I did ask a journalist friend of mine before I went to university what I should study if, if journalism was even an idea. And he said, you should study English. And I, in fact, that might even have been before my A-levels, which is when you're 16, 17. Um, so I did English, but then I went on to do politics at university. I always thought that having a grounding in another a more general area was good for being a sports journalist because I, you know, you sort of, yeah, maybe I'm being a bit sort of pious about all this stuff, but it's if you only know sport and you only talk about that, you can't bring anything from outside your life into your writing. So the more that you have from outside. That's the advice I would always give to someone who wants to be a journalist in the end is, is for a start, study something else uh, just in case you don't get there. But also it gives you a better grounding, I think. You cover a variety of sports in your career. Um, football, tennis being one of the main things you cover now, cricket, uh, quite a bit of golf as well. One of the common elements in that is the international aspect to each of those sports, both in terms of the competitors and the competitions. Did that kind of draw you to those particular sports? Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe subconsciously, yeah. It's, it's certainly, it's what I've never been hugely patriotic, for example. You know, I'm not a sort of flag waver out there on the street trying to get England to win matches. So, I always loved, you know, I loved Greg Norman and Tom Watson as golfers when I was young. I loved uh, Diego Maradona and 
you know, some of the Brazilian players in, in football, Pele, Socrates, well, Pele was before my time, but Adair, Socrates, Zico, etc. So, yeah, I was always drawn to these things. John McEnroe was my sporting hero as a kid, not for his behaviour, although I did find that entertaining uh, as an 11-year-old when he won Wimbledon in 84. Um, but, uh, yeah, there probably is an international link there. And it, I think I was always fascinated by what different people brought from their own countries, their own lives into their sport. What are some of the more striking differences, though, between those sports? Because football, tennis, cricket, golf are all really kind of their own beasts. They handle their competition differently, both in terms of what they do on their particular field of play, but also just their governance. So what are the, for you covering them, what are some of the striking differences and commonalities even? The biggest difference, I mean, you know, there's a lot of demand on their time for getting their athletes to give their time to press. They, they all share that. But the biggest difference is that football has become such a massive business in this country in the last 30 years. Since the Premier League, since the top flight became the Premier League and all the money from Sky TV came in and the broadcasting rights took off, football's become such huge business and they have decided that really that means that they can keep control of everything. It's a closed shop, you know, a relatively closed shop. To get an interview with a big name footballer is a very, very difficult thing unless you have a huge name behind you, whether it's been a newspaper. And even then it's very difficult. After a, after a top level football match in this country, Premier League, the, the, the team will put on the captain and the manager to talk or one player and the manager. There's no easy chance to get to talk to all the players. There is a mixed zone where the players walk through and you can try and speak to them, but they have no obligation to stop. They usually stop for TV and then wander through and, you know, pick their favourites and or don't bother at all. Whereas I think some of the other sports, golf in particular, is has learned or learned very quickly that the media was a very important part of their of their sport and, and spreading their sport. And golfers, I've always found, no matter who they are, I mean, yes, of course, sometimes when they're, when they're in a bad mood, they'll have a go at you. Uh, I remember Phil Mickelson almost in tears once telling me to ask Vijay Singh for an interview instead after a, a match play a match play <laughs> defeat where Vijay Singh had chipped in at the last hole but or being told where to go by Colin Montgomery, for example. But generally, they would always stop, and that's right down to the biggest names, the Tiger Woods of these worlds, and especially in the early days, they would always stop and chat for a couple of minutes, no matter who you were. It didn't, your, your standing in the sport didn't matter. They knew that they had to do that, and I think, I think golf still does that to a certain extent. And tennis, within tennis, we complain about access to tennis players, but really, when you compare it to other sports, we are very lucky. We get access to every player after the match if they win, and even if they lose, if they get requested, they should come in and speak to the press. So you might not get one-on-one -on -one access, um, but you also might. But generally, you'll definitely get a chance to speak to a player, which is amazing. The majority of your career has been as a freelance journalist. What goes into pursuing and securing work when you're a freelancer? Yeah, it's a, it can be a bit scary at first. Um, the transition from being a full-time sports journalist into being freelance is is scary and it, it really is like a lot of fields it you need to first of all you need to develop a reputation somehow of being good at your job whether it's being solid getting your work in on time doing what you're asked of 
and making sure that's done. But in terms of getting work, you often, you know, it's people you've met along the way. In my case, people that I uh, became friends with or colleagues with, uh, somebody asked me to go and cover the, the 2002 uh, Fed Cup final, which was in Gran Canaria, um, and I did it for Reuters. Uh, and that was pretty much my first main freelance tennis writing gig. Um, and after that, because once you, once you show them that you can do a good job, there is, you tend to get repeat work. You know, there are a lot of people out there who try to be a sports journalist. There are hundreds and thousands, aren't there? I mean, these days it's ridiculous. Um, but a lot of them aren't that good. It, it might, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the greatest writer in the world, but I get my stuff in on time. I can write it fast. I can get it. It's accurate. I started working in uh, sports news at Bloomberg News, and it was a very good grounding because it just taught you to write straight and simple, tell them what happened, you know, don't put your opinion in it necessarily. Just say what happened, what it means, uh, and what, what goes on from there. And that is always something that I fall back on. If, you know, when you're trying to think of a nice flowery intro, introduction to a piece, something stylish and interesting, if you can't do that, just write it straight and it will read fine. So that side of things, if you repeat, if you do decent job, you get repeat work. And then it's just a case of, being sort of smart about it, I went, and, and lucky too. I mean, I went, I decided to go and cover Haller in 2003 um, because it was one of the big grass court tournaments before Wimbledon. And Federer happened to win it for the first time. And I wrote the final up for The Guardian. I, was, I phoned them up and I said, you know, I'm here for the final. Federer is this, this great young player. Do you want something? Yes, they did, uh, which was great that they took it. And he won Wimbledon three weeks later or two weeks later. And 2005, I went to San Jose just because I thought I could, you know, do some tennis and maybe do it for some of the newspapers. And, you know, you were there too, I think. And um, yep. Andy Murray won his first tournament. And so you, when you get a bit of luck like that, you get a bit of a, an interaction with the players and they remember you a little bit. Andy Roddick was there, Leighton Hewitt was there. You know, it was a good tournament. Um, and, and that was a lot of fun. And it, it, so you need that little bit of luck, but you also need to think strategically about what people might want from you or what they would be interested in. You almost then wind up sometimes having to sell twice. You've got to sell it to an editor who hopefully hires you to do it, but then also to that publicity manager or PR person, whomever it is for that team, or even now to the personal PR person for that player. That has to be a tough process because you could fall down twice before you even get out of the gates. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, can, you can get accreditation, hopefully, with a bit of help to a tournament, um, but there's no guarantee that anything you write will be taken on by a newspaper. And things have changed a lot over the last 20 years or so. Since, since I started going freelance, it used to be that you could go to San Jose and you could phone up a newspaper and say, look, Andy Murray's playing tomorrow. I'll get a little bit of time with him, a couple of minutes extra, whatever. Um, would you like something? And it was always a yes, because they needed, the, the papers were doing well, they needed copy. Now, it has to be a sort of breaking story for it to even get in the paper or a news-related something, something that's really going to turn the dial in, in on, on their spec. But also, yeah, you're right. You have to, you build relationships with agents, with press officers, with clients, with tournament directors so that they know who you are and they trust you. When you ask for an interview with a big name player, they know that you're not going to turn them over and 
ask them some random weird, weird questions and make them look bad. They know that even if they do say something that's a little bit outlandish, you will use it in the right way. You're not going to, you're not a sensationalist journalist, but you're right about selling in different ways. I mean, in Marseille in 2008, the, the, I was the only British uh, newspaper journalist covering that tournament, an indoor tournament in February where Andy Murray won again. And all of the newspapers wanted to know about it. So I had six newspapers to write for, uh, all pretty much on deadline. I had about an hour and a half to get them all done. They all wanted about six to 800 words. And it's got to be different. Right. You know, so you, uh, you can't just write the same thing. Yes, some of the quotes will be the same. And it was just match reporting mostly. But it needed to be different for their, you're writing in a different style, in a slightly different tone, for different readers and you've got to know that and figure that out otherwise they spend too long the other end putting it into their format and making it work so every night in Marseille that week I did that and every evening I had a giant carafe of red wine because I had such a headache oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that is a an unique situation probably to the freelance life because if you're there yeah. and you're on assignment for one particular paper you're answering to one particular editor you might write two or three pieces of copy that day but yeah. probably spread out throughout the day to face that is certainly a unique challenge to the freelancer is that something you just learn by doing there's no way to really prepare for that is there no pretty much i mean you, you know you learn as you go along in your sort of training you do a bit of writing of what what you call a running story a runner you know, where something's live and it's happening. So you might even file, if it's a football match, for example, football reporters will file half the story first, well before the end. That's sort of the chunk, the trunk of the story. And then they'll top it and put something on the bottom to make it read nicely. And obviously late goals change everything and, you know, you can end up rewriting completely. But yeah, it's a, it's a unique uh, part of freelance life. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you do, you know, a week like that, from a freelance point of view, you, you do well financially. So it's very rewarding in that sense. It's obviously very good for your, for your sort of portfolio and stuff. But I mean, it also makes me realize that it has made me realize many times over the years, how nice it is to just be writing for one publication at an event or a given time, because you can just think about it. You can think about things a lot more. You can talk, you have time to talk to a lot of people. I mean, people will always say to, you know, often say to me at the end of a day of a Grand Slam uh, tennis event, when, you, as you know, there's so much going on, so many matches, so many things happening. You know, what happened today? And I've got no idea because I've spent all day <laughs> writing or running around. And you, you're sort of focused on just churning out all these pieces that you need to write. Whereas when you're writing for one place, you can really give it a lot of thought and it's a, it's a luxury. I mean, obviously, some people are very, very good writers and very good journalists and do a really good job at that. But I also think some of them don't quite realise what life is like for a freelance. And also the insecurity of it all, which is the other side. How do you come up with those ideas then? Obviously, if you're a Brit and you're in Marseille and Andy Murray's playing that's pretty easy to figure out. I'm going to cover Andy Murray. But when you're in downtime between tournaments or at a major where there are so many matches to choose from, how do you come up with the stories that you're going to go after and you're going to pursue both to pitch and to write? It is. Uh, it's really just a sort of as and when you, you, you see something or you hear something or something happens in a tournament or, you know, you might spot, for example... I don't know, you might spot that somebody 
qualified for a tournament and made the semis. And then you think to yourself, oh, it's quite interesting. I wonder how many qualifiers have done that. And it's not just a factual thing. You think about the difficulty of qualifying for a tournament. So there might be ideas that just go into your head according to what you read and, and, and see. I mean, I think it also depends who you're, what kind of writer, writer you are or what kind of publication you're aiming at. Because there, are, there probably aren't that many journalists who would be writing a sort of straight news piece one day and then a feature the next and a, an in-depth interview the next. And, you know, there are only a handful of those people. Um, and some can't do all those things. Some are very, very good at interviews. Some are very good at straight news, but not in between. Um, but I think, like, for, for example, in the last few years, I've written quite a lot for ESPN.com. And they have a news desk, which I do sometimes write newsy things for them. But often I'm writing more feature-led things, which involve talking to people, interviewing people. And so I do spend quite a lot of time noting down story ideas and things. You learn from working with these people what they're interested in and what makes them tick. And so if you see a story, um, for example, I mean, you know, there, there's this Wimbledon being cancelled. I, I can imagine that uh, some people have already received their tickets in the post. Uh, you know, those tickets might become quite valuable in future. You know, that's a fun story to write. You just make a couple of calls and see what you can find, you know, things like that. So there's, it's a lot of, I suppose a lot of it comes with experience because you know what is of interest to people. But in some, sometimes I do catch myself thinking, God, how it's quite tiring coming up with all these stories and different ideas and, the, you know, varying between or veering between uh, more statistical stuff and then more, more imaginative stuff. And then it, it's also a case of what players you have access to. And I suppose in these times when none of us are traveling, that makes getting access to players more and more difficult in theory. So uh, do you, dedicate time to idea generation or are you just constantly you could be at the market with your son and you come up with an idea or you could you know it just it's constantly coming to you and then how do you track them do you have an app on your phone you're using is it a notebook do you email yourself what's your method for keeping those ideas so that you can then maybe follow up on one or two that you decide are worth following up on oh pete you overestimate how organized i am <laughs> I, sorry, sorry. My <laughs> no, I wish I wish I it, I tend it tends to be more of the former I would things ideas will come to me at random times I mean sometimes you I mean you've written by this stage you've written so many stories in your life that intro introductions or first paragraphs intros will just sort of pop into your head for a story you can you could get an idea for a story. As you said, you're shopping with your son, you're out doing something and you think, oh yeah, that, I'll, try, I'll think about that later. And then even as you're walking around talking to them, the intro appears in your head and you can see the way the story is likely to unfold. Um, I don't have an app or, or an Excel spreadsheet, unfortunately. I wish I did. I wish I was more organized like that. I do know some people who keep little mini discs even now in 2020 of all their interviews, which is oh, wow. insane. <laughs> um, I mean, I haven't even got the room to do that, but I, I tend to just, I do write lists. I keep a, you know, a sort of tally of the features that I'm working on and who I'm trying to pitch it to. Um, but more than anything more than that and a calendar, um, I don't really go beyond, but it's a, a lot of ideas just come, come along. You have the idea, you get to go do the interview. How do you prepare for that interview and 
how much does that differ depending on, hey, a straight gamer, you just need someone to talk about striking that winning shot versus the in-depth piece of a profile. Yeah, I mean, it sort of almost goes without saying that the sort of quicker piece when you need to talk to someone after a match, it's pretty generic, you know, it's depending on what happened, it's, you know, how do you feel, how did it go? There was probably a big moment in the match, you might talk to them about that and what happens next. So it's generally those things. With a feature, you do, I mean, I do a lot more preparation for that. Um, you know, sometimes when the, with the after post-match stuff, when you're running around just trying to get a play, you may not even have seen all the match and sure. you still need to talk to them. So you're just grabbing, you know, you're really asking them to tell you what happened properly before <laughs> you tell everybody else. Uh, but yeah, features and more sort of in-depth things, you do do a lot more preparation. You might look around to see, you know, it, it also depends who it is um, and how big a player they are because I think it's, it's human nature that the bigger they are, the maybe the more intimidating they are, you feel like you've got to be fully prepared. So you, you can't be just, you can't just go in there and wing it. Well, you shouldn't. I mean, obviously everything <laughs> has some stages sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, you would, I would sit down and do some preparation, look around at things they've said in the past and things that have happened to them or, you know, what they've been up to, maybe look at their uh, family life, the things they like doing. You, and you also need to, when you're doing interviews with players, they, by, after a, a certain number of years of doing it, they obviously know roughly who you are a little bit. You know, they'll know your name or they'll know something. So you don't have to try to impress them about stuff. You don't have to try and show them that you know everything or prove that you know stuff. But you still need to put them at ease and make it a nice, easy conversation. You know, and some players are, are more natural at that than others. So some are easier to deal with. But um, yeah, the preparation is is very important because you also need to be you need to be prepared enough so that when they say something that is moving away from your answers, that you have time to follow up. You've got to be paying full attention to sort of follow up to an interesting answer they give to you instead of just list going off your list of of questions. Is that what you do? Do you have a list of questions, or do you have these are the topics I want to cover? What's your what are you bringing with you? Bit of both. I would have I would have a list of some important questions, but I often, even as I'm doing it, and I'm often rushed in preparation. It has to be said. So I'd be changing the order of them that I want to watch, want to ask, and I'll write a couple of numbers by the side of them, and then a few extra notes to ask. And yeah, if there's and so you have an order of priority, and there'll be a question, maybe an offbeat question that you can't ask first because that could put them in the wrong. Right. For the rest of the rest of the conversations, the stuff that you really need. And when you're a freelance and you're interviewing someone, even if it's in theory for one particular feature or an interview, you're always thinking when they say something, you think, oh, I could use that for something else. So there might be four, five different pieces that you end up writing from that one interview. And that's a that's a skill I think you develop as you go along. You mentioned having to be very present and listening to what they're saying to be able to play off that follow-up, as you said. But you also have to be taking in and, and yeah. working with what they're, they're giving you. Are you recording? Are you taking notes? Are you doing both? Are you trying to do a live transcript by, by hand? What's your listening process? I'm, I'm not a good enough typist to do live transcripts. Um, I generally record it if the player or the person is happy, happy about that. And um, just for just actually just for proof, you know, for factual 
reasons because it's very easy to misquote people if you don't have an accurate record. My shorthand is fine. Um, it's, you know, a little bit rusty, can't write as fast as I used to, but it's okay. But I wouldn't necessarily want to trust only in that. So, and I will also, I will also take notes as we go along. So if they have said something really of interest, I'll put a little mark around that to check it. You get that taken care of for you when you're at the press conferences. What do they do at a lot of the major events, golf, tennis, and some of the other sports to make it real easy for you guys to know what's been said in that press conference room? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, service that they provide. It's um, one company in particular, ASAP Sports, who transcribe or print live the, uh, the interviews and the, and the post-match press conferences. And it's, uh, it's ready for you within a couple of minutes. It's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it, in some ways, it makes us a little bit lazy because you, you then might not go to a press conference that you could have gone to because you know that someone else will ask the questions and someone will pick it up. I mean, there's always the unwritten rule is that you should, if you need a question answered, a particular area, you can't just trust in someone else to ask it for you. You've got to make sure you're there and ask it. But the service, the actual time-saving side of things, of, of them transcribing every interview is, is enormous because transcribing interviews is the bane of any, any journalist's life. It takes ages. You know, I am a reasonable typist, but it does take a long time. And although the one, the, the one upside of it is that as you're transcribing it, you're almost formulating the story. But still, if you've got an interview with someone that's an hour long, that is a long time to transcribe that. You need the stenography machine that the ASAP people use to, to get oh. that process quicker. It is <laughs> phenomenal, isn't it? The way they type in sort of it, almost in word formats, three words for one, and just one, one click of a, one finger on the typewriter, Chris, makes uh, four words you know, or a phrase. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, they are trained stenographers. They're in court. They're doing all sorts. Um, and they spend their time covering these tournaments for us. So that does help a lot. One of the assets you need to develop as you go on in an international sports setting is understanding the meaning behind what people are saying, whether it's, uh, first of all, just through accents and whatnot, but also through just different turns of phrase, or uh, especially if English is a second language. And you have worked with athletes over the years to see them grow into a comfort level with English as a second language, but you've probably also had to do some interviews through a translator. And yeah. how does that change what you're doing? And do you ever worry you're missing some of the the nuance because it's not their native tongue. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to get as good a uh, response from someone in if it has to come through a translator. Um, and it impacts on the way you ask the questions. You simplify your questions enormously or make them much more direct. Because, you know, if you're talking to someone who's a native English speaker and they, or, or a very um, experienced one after many years, you know, you can go off tangent, you can talk about all sorts of things before you get to the question you want. But when you're going through a, a translator or any, in any situation like that, or somebody who doesn't speak very good English and you're just asking questions, you've got to keep it simple. And uh, you, so they absolutely understand, even if their vocabulary is not great, then at least you'll get roughly the answer you wanted. And there'll be times when you have to, uh, I mean, you know, there, there are verbatim quotes from these players, but some of them make absolutely no sense. So, you know, there, is, there are huge English gaps in it. So you've got to put in brackets 
to make the sentence flow. It's not, you, you, it's not changing quotes, but you've got to actually make the sentence flow and make it understood. There are, there are plenty of times when that happens. I think you've showed your cards already a little bit on this next question, um, but there is a lot of information that comes your way. We've already talked about all the quotes. You've mentioned some of the statistics. There's also just the anecdotes where you kind of keep in your mind, oh, this player saved match points or they had a stoppage time goal or, oh yeah, that putt on that hole. All these anecdotes and, and moments just kind of build and build and build. And there's a, a phenomenon, I think, among sports writers to be able to store a lot of that mentally, the way you've rattled off um, 2002 Fed Cup, 2003 Halle, 2008 Marseille, 2005 San Jose, you know, you, you clearly have a lot of this just off the top of your head, but do you find that you need to do something else to keep this data organized, to tap into it so that when you're covering the 2020 Australian Open, you can harken back to something that happened at the 2016 French Open? I think we're, we're, we're very lucky in the sense that a lot of the statistical information, the historical information is there for you. You can find it quite quickly, whether it be through a quick Google search or whether the tournament has a list of, you know, you know, outstanding performances or records that have happened. So a lot of those things you can rely on others to have provided for you, which may sound a bit lazy, but it's just because it's there, I don't have to worry about it. I will sometimes keep uh, a list of little anecdotes or things that have happened so that, it, but there'll be more in the line of if I'm thinking about a feature, I might've just shoved it in a document so that I can look at it later. But generally, I use my memory for for most of these things. There'll be plenty of times though when you're sort of sat at your desk and you're racking your brain for when somebody <laughs> said something. Um, again, ASAP is a very good uh, outlet for that, a good source of information to check. Or you'll be asking your colleagues. Um, but I, I used to, I mean, I, I pride myself a little bit on I haven't by any means got a photographic memory, but I, my memory for sporting events is, is clearly much stronger than it is for a lot of other things. And even when I played tennis as a kid, I used to be able to remember every point for a set, So, which helped a lot with cheats because people would cheat <laughs> the score and you'd say, actually, no, because blah, blah, blah. And so I think that's, that served me quite well uh, in general. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those things, are so they stick in your mind so much. But then a lot of things, a lot of years of Wimbledon's just merge into one. They roll into one until you find a little bit of information, then it all comes back. We've talked a lot about the Grand Slams. Those are unique tennis events. If you can go cover uh, a football match and it's, you know, the competition itself is only a couple hours. You'll get there early, you'll leave late and call it a day. Golf, they play over four days. So that's a little bit longer, but tennis is two weeks. And in particular, as the freelancer, where you could be covering for multiple outlets, having to file so many different stories, what is a typical day like for you at a Grand Slam in terms of the hours, the number of stories, the number of pitches, the whole thing? How does that day unfold for you at a major? It all depends on how many different outlets you're writing for, of course. But it's a, for a start, it's a long day. There's a lot of sitting in the press room writing, finding things. There's some, you might still be pitching a few ideas to people at the same time. Um, you'll be talking to your desk, um, which can be difficult in itself when you're in the other side of the world and they don't get up till later. So your hours stretch 
you know, really, I would get on site at the Grand Slam these days quite early, 9, 9.30, 10, something like that. And then you'll be there really until, you're, until you don't need to be there, which, which can be anything from, you know, 10 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning. So it's a long, long day. And I always think about Grand Slams as a freelancer. It's a, it's a very strange situation that by the time you get to the weekend, finals weekend, semis, finals, that should be the time when you're writing your best stuff. It's the best matches. It's the best part of the tournament. The players are absolutely going for it. You know, it could be pieces of history being made and you are just willing it to be over. Because <laughs> you're exhausted, you know. You're, you know you've churned through so many words. I mean, I, I, there are some Grand Slams where I've written sort of 60, 70, 80,000 words in the two weeks. Wow. And it's just crazy, you know. So it doesn't, it's not always like that, but there are some like that. And so by the time you get to that stage, you really... You're you're finding it hard to to be to write in as free a manner as you as you would if you were only writing for one outfit. So what do you need to do? I mean, we we know that the players go through recovery and everything with their matches. What do you do for your mental and physical well-being? You mentioned the carafe of wine. Perhaps that's <laughs> still part of your repertoire. But what do you do to keep yourself physically and mentally going for those two weeks? It's a, it's a slog. I'm not sure we have much time to do that. You can. It depends, you know, that when you're doing, if you're lucky enough to have a home slam and you live at home nearby, you might be able to go to the gym in the morning or something like that. But the cumulative effect of a grand slam makes it harder and harder to do that. And also the matches last later and later. So that becomes more difficult. I think in the first week of grand slams, I certainly try to do more exercise, um, play some tennis, get out there a bit. Um, but the recovery side of having a beer or a glass of wine is also important because it's, it's downtime. You know, that's, that's all it is. That's the only, the only time you get. I mean, this year in Australia, as you know, was, was mad. It seemed like every day, you know, we didn't even get out until one o'clock in the morning. So on your way home, you had a drink, but it was already two o'clock in the morning. It's nuts. So there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of that. I don't want to make out like our life is full of drinking because it isn't. It's often... (laughs) Often you've got so much work to do, you just can't do that. But um, you do need some downtime somehow to at least refresh yourself. And in, in Australia, for example, I would go out for breakfast every day, and that was my form of relaxation. There's also the challenge, though, to turn it off because, you know, if you're there late, you're there because you're covering a particular match. And, and so there's the adrenaline of having to file copy, especially if you're filing multiple pieces off that one match you're not only kind of on the edge of your seat because of the match ebb and flow, but then you're having to work very hard to get done and get the quotes and get those in and get that filed. And, you know, it's, it's hard to just go from full speed to zero. You, you almost need that unwinding period before you could even go try to reset for the following day. Yeah, you do. In an ideal world, you'd have a lot more time than we do have. I, I am lucky in the sense that I can, generally sleep very quickly after the end of a day uh, you know no, man, no matter whether you you might sometimes finish up working from wherever you're staying your hotel room or your apartment which happens a lot because you know you, you you might not necessarily need to be there for the last match but you're still working on something and yet you know that sitting on site all day long for no you know at the end of it when you don't need to be there is not healthy so you get out you get home you get a little bit of a mental breather that way and then, you know, you almost finish writing your story, press send, 
quick check for any edits and then you're in bed. I mean, you need to, in my case, I, I'm lucky that I can just switch off very quickly and go to sleep and not worry about it. And I've, you learn over the years, really, when you start out, you're very aware of, you know, you really try and make your pieces perfect as it possibly could be. Uh, you know, you sometimes agonize over the words and the wording and the phrasing. And uh, you get to a point when you've got enough experience where you realize that you've done a good job and you've done it. And it's, it's not that that'll do, which is, which is something I do say sometimes, that'll do, right, bang. But you are in a position where you know that's good enough and it's not going to get any better if you do agonize over it for ages anyway. So you've done the job and you get it done. As you battle through this mental fatigue and, and get through these long days, you mentioned you're writing for ESPN.com. So you have this unique challenge that is not a lot of people have to deal with this, but you have to spell color or favorite two <laughs> different ways. How many times do you screw that up and your editors just hammer you for that one? Uh, quite a lot. Um, cancel, <laughs> canceling with one L is a, is a, is a common failure. Uh, behavior with no U, yeah, behavior color. Um, it's not too bad. I sort of, again, because when you're writing for a several places, you can get confused, you know, you can forget. And if there's one thing I do that I don't, that is, is a sort of, is a, not a failing, but something that I wish I didn't do, often it's mostly because you're writing so fast. I often am busy writing it and I think I write something and I think, oh, I'll check that in a minute. And so you've done it and then you send it and you're like, oh, whoops, <laughs> check it. And, you're, and you get this sort of red flush of going up through your face of I made a big mistake and you check it and most of the time it's fine. And if it isn't, you just send it through and say, look, I forgot to do this. But yeah, I mean, I know from an editor's point of view, being on the other end of it, if, if somebody continually makes the same mistakes again and again, it is a real pain. Um, but it's also on them to tell you, and some don't do it. They just like moaning about it. So it's for, for them, it's a bit of sport to just moan and moan and moan. Oh, he never gets that right. God's sake. And someone says, have you ever told him? No. Oh. So we, I don't mind being told. I don't mind being the mistakes being pointed out as long as we can fix them. There's an acronym, ITWA. What does that stand for and what's your role with that organization? It is the International Tennis Writers Association. That's, it's a, a group, a sort of, it's not like, quite like a union, but it's a group that looks after the interests of the, the general traveling tennis writers and radio broadcasters. Um, so it, it sort of looks out for their interests, tries to make their working conditions good and if there are any issues people have with getting accreditation for tournaments or anything they need to talk about they can come to us and ask and hopefully we can help and we liaise with uh, tournaments and federations to try to ease situations and and work out the best working conditions for everybody and take a little bit of a role in how tennis is run from a media point of view um, at the moment I'm co-president of ITWA for my sins I'm about a year into it and I'm a year <laughs> away from when I could step down in theory and that may well happen. Um, Isabel Musi is the other co-president. She's very good. Um, and we have a board of 10 people that we discuss all the important matters that come our way. So um, it's, a, it's quite a lot of, it's actually quite a lot of work to, to do that goes uh, unpaid and unseen, but it's also useful because we've also benefited from everybody else doing that job in the past and, helping, helping our, our conditions.
it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because in particular for you as a freelancer, you really are competing head to head with some other people in the room. Uh, but even if you weren't it, journalists, there is some competitive streak, especially in within certain regions and markets, you want to get the story that your competitor doesn't. So it's interesting to hear that you guys do work together and that there is that camaraderie. And I think it's probably unique because it is such a traveling group, but how do you find that relationship between being competitors and being comrades in, in this struggle to get through two weeks? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it really depends on the individuals in there and their personalities and, you know, you all get to know each other fairly well, but there, there is always that competitive uh, nature going on and you're always trying to get the best interview with someone and get the best line out of them. So you're always, you're obviously protective of your own stuff, but there is, I think it's a, a British, certainly it's been very strong in British journalism, sports journalism, this whole pooling idea, which I don't know how long, how far back it dates, but I, I dare say it's quite a long way where you know, it might be that two people will speak to somebody, um, but it's not earth shattering stuff, but it's good enough to uh, keep your editors happy. And a lot of these guys who, and, and women who write for um, the tabloid press in Britain in particular are under enormous pressure to get different stuff. Um, now, whereas that sounds the opposite of what pooling does, it at least gets things that the newswires, the Reuters, the APs, the DPAs, the AFPs, et cetera, of this world don't have. So from a newspaper point of view, they're always happy with that. And pooling just helps uh, in that sense. I, 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 it's a difficult one because I, having grown up in a, at a newswire, I think if you get a, an interview with someone, you know, passing them by wherever it is, and you get it, you should just keep it for yourself. It's your job well done. But when you're on the road and you are all working in conjunction with each other, if not together, there are definitely times when if someone speaks to a British tennis coach about something, it's, it's considered the norm to pass it on or to say to people, look, I've got this stuff if you want it. And someone can say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a look at it. And that's fine. You know, they've probably already written it themselves quickly and maybe be the first person, but others can have access to it. Um, and also with players, we, we have been very lucky over the years to have extra time with Andy Murray, uh, which has really made a massive difference to certainly to freelancers and to a lot of, a lot of writers. And we have pulled that two people will go and speak to him two or three, and then we'll share it out between us. We'll do the transcription between us um, and rotate it among ourselves. And that's helped a lot. And, and I know Federer famously gets credit for doing press conferences in three different languages, but I think yeah. this is, part of how I got to know you and, and so many British journalists over the years is that Andy will do the general press conference, then we'll go talk to the British dailies, then have a separate conversation with the British Sundays. And I think that that was eye opening for me to see that collaboration that you guys have, even though you're competing to, we need to get access and it helps everybody the more access we can get. So if we can play nice in the sandbox, we hopefully get more time in the sandbox. Yeah, and it, it, with um, in Andy's case, it was absolutely great that he was happy to do it and also that his management realised that it was uh, a better way of managing Andy's time. I think, you know, the one selling point from to, when you're pushing it to an agent about to do this is, you know, it means that we're not badgering him all the time. We're not trying to get him in practice or chasing him around his hotel room and stuff. We'll leave him to it if we know we can have five minutes where we can ask a few different questions. And over time, obviously, 
newspapers in Britain have become a seven day a week operation. So there's no separate Sundays anymore, but you're right. It was, it's a huge, huge thing. It's down to Charlie Wyatt, actually, who works for the sun still, who helped to uh, barter that uh, arrangement. And over the years also, Andy Murray's got to know us all a lot better. So I think, you know, he, after initially feeling a little bit fearful and why do I have to do this? He became um, very open to it all and very, pretty happy to do it most of the time. In your role with it, where you look at kind of the global, the working conditions you talked about, and one of the big changes in your couple decades in the industry has been technology. What have been the pluses and minuses as technology has just taken over the media world? Well, I mean, the pluses, we've already talked about ASAP sports and the transcription services that are available. We can get that email to us if we're lucky. Um, Google. Yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the huge information, I mean, you know the same thing in, in broadcast, just to get that stuff quickly is so important. But, um, yeah, uh, just access to information is immense now at the click of a, of a keyboard. That's helped an enormous amount in terms of researching information that we need for writing or, or broadcasting, commentating, which I also do. But um, the downsides of it are, you know, as I said, it was not a union, but one of the things that we've spent so much time on and really got no, not very far with is uh, in interviews when there is a press conference, how to create a situation where that press conference nowadays TV and broadcast and everyone want that immediately and want it broadcast. Tournaments want it broadcast around the world so their exposure is as great as possible, which everybody understands. But there's that sort of trade-off between we're the ones, the journalists are the ones in the room asking the questions, getting these answers out of these players, which create good TV snippets on news items or whatever. Um, and yet... Sometimes we are being scooped by our own desks even, you know, before we've even had a chance to write up a story from an interesting answer. It's either been shoved out on Twitter and the editors have seen it or it's on a video that people have watched straight away. So there's, there's that. That is a difficult situation. Some of the tournaments have really helped. You know, they've maybe delayed putting the transcript online, which does help because at least it means that if someone's going to pinch it from a video, they've actually got to watch the video and then note it down themselves. So it's a time, it's a time issue, really. You just, you just want a bit of time to be able to get the benefit of your work. That's, and that's, a, that's an ongoing discussion and one of the difficulties of, of increased uh, technology. As we look back through your career, one of the common elements of some of your writing has been gambling and you know tips and, and things and what to watch for and uh, gambling's relatively new here in the US it's coming online in kind of a state by state different rollouts in different places but you've been around sport and gambling in sport for a long time what do we need to know you need to know that it's nothing to fear first um, gambling vernacular is part of the vocabulary of, of British British people I mean, if you walk down the any row in a in a sporting event involving British people, you will hear them talking about who's the favourite for this. What what chances would you give that? What odds do you reckon so and so is? Oh, I'll give you four to one. You know, it's that kind of stuff going on. It's in the vocabulary. It's in the language. You know, the chances, the odds, the you know odds on favourite, outsider. It's all part of the words that people would hear in sport all the time, but don't necessarily associate directly with gambling but it all comes from gambling 
gambling goes back hundreds of years in, in Britain. So it's starting with, you know, the kings and queens riding horses and having their horses running races and losing almost their kingdoms on it. It's, it's something that we've learned. It's part of our, part of the fabric of Britain, really. And it is nothing to fear. Now, there are, is obviously a huge downside if you're an addicted gambler and you have huge debt problems, maybe depression, uh, mental health issues. There are massive issues to to cope with and all the companies who who take bets need to be on top of that and really work with people to make sure that that is absolutely limited. But in general, as long as you can be assured of the integrity of the sport, there's nothing wrong with having a bet on it. And for a lot of people, having five pounds on a football match is, makes the football match much more interesting. What does having a, a active gambling culture do to change the sports media? Ah, that's a good question. I think, well, I mean, the sports media are obviously, I mean, half of them will be betting themselves <laughs> and, until, uh, until they realize that they're maybe not allowed to, depending on what sport they're covering. Um, but it means that it's, it's so ingrained in your, in your thought. Like the whole country has, well, virtually the whole country will have a bet on the Grand National, the horse racing event I mentioned. And it'll be from, you know, grandmothers around the country to, you know, a 10-year-old having a little one-pound bet with a sweepstake, as we call it, um, just to, to have a bit of fun. And it's considered, generally considered fun until it crosses the line into getting out of hand. But I think from a sports media point of view, the, the advertising is enormous. It's put a lot of money into to sports. Quite a lot of, I think it's a quarter or maybe more, <coughs> excuse me, of um, the Premier League teams are sponsored by gambling companies. That's their shirt sponsor. Um, I can double check the figures for, on that for you, but it's certainly a significant number. And a lot of the sports channels in this country have are heavily sponsored by gambling companies. Does it also change the content? I mean, obviously you've done some writing specific to that audience, but does it, does it change the content? Of if, if you're writing to it or, or the, the broadcast? In general, are there more specific stories about here's what to bet on or right. broadcast programs of, you know, here's where to wager? Yeah, sorry. In terms of in the way British Britain works, yeah, we have, we have a dedicated sports uh, betting newspaper called the Racing Post. We used to have two, one the Sporting Life, which still exists online. Um, and their job is to give people tips on what to bet on, mostly based around horse racing. But more and more over the last 20 years, football has taken over as the second biggest sport. And actually, tennis is the third, which is really interesting, uh, partly because tennis is such a good sport to bet on from a betting point of view because there are only two out outcomes. You know, one guy wins or the other one wins. Um, and... There is, for example, a racing horse racing betting uh, program on TV on a Saturday morning uh, called The Morning Line, which is all about, you know, talking to jockeys and owners about what races are coming up. So there is definitely a lot of, there are plenty of other programs like that dotted around. And there'll be stuff in the newspapers. Most sports newspapers have some sort of small betting content in. We see athletes and, and we see this a lot in tennis due to the popularity of betting on it uh you know player loses match and gets all kinds of social media abuse from someone who lost money on that particular match 
if you've written an article that gives bad advice, do you run the risk of getting some of that same feedback in your uh, Twitter mentions? Yeah, absolutely. If you, uh, I mean, I don't, I tend not to write uh, specific tipping stuff anymore, but um, yeah, if you're writing that you're, you're open to abuse, you're uh, absolutely there to be shot at. If you're based, you're sort of judged on your record. And if you're not getting winners, people will have a go at you all over the place. It's pretty horrific. I mean, tennis players get horrible abuse. Um, these days on social media for all sorts of stuff, which is horrific. But um, yeah, if you're if you're involved in the betting world, then you will be open to that kind of thing. I want to close as all episodes of Credentials Only Close with the set pieces. These are uh, just some insights into you and don't want to necessarily limit this to sports. Um, and we'll start with what do you subscribe to? Is podcasts or newsletters to stay informed and to keep learning? I am actually not a huge listener of uh, podcasts, even though I do like them. I do. I used to listen to one with Stephen Fry, the uh, British actor, author, um, who gave a sort of fantastic outlook on life. I also listened to Ricky Gervais's one for a while. They're good, um, but generally, I don't. I don't read too much sporting sports magazines, too many sports magazines or anything like that. I do look at the Racket magazine, which is very nice these days. Um, but generally not too many. Who are your MVFs, your most valuable follows on social media? Well, this is exciting. Uh, Novak Djokovic and his wife, Yelena Djokovic. They're probably the, uh, the main two. What stands out about them? Well, I, I can't figure out why they're following me, but it's dead exciting. Yeah. <laughs> As world number, one, world number one tennis player and his wife. Uh, are there any that you are kind of you must must pay attention to what they put out? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I follow. I do look at Chris Clary's stuff a lot on uh, New York on the New York Times best New York Times sports writers. John Branch too, who you know as well, fantastic writer who's sort of able to write about anything. So whenever he puts anything out there, I do I do take a closer look at that. What are a couple of books you would recommend to others? In, it's not very uh, um, particularly imaginative, but if you're a tennis fan and if you like to play tennis as well, and if you sort of like the mental side of it, go back and read The Inner Game of Tennis because by Timothy Galway or The Inner Game of Golf, which is also along the same lines. It really teaches you. It helped me a lot when I was uh, playing tennis as a junior just to sort of understand why you were getting angry and how to – how to sort of cut that out and just treat yourself as, as a one individual thing, trying to play let your body play the game and don't let your mind get too attached or too involved. And if, and a non-sporting book, uh, I mean, going back a long way, when I first read Count of Monte Cristo, I, that was just phenomenal. If you want a bit to have a bit of fun, that's a great book. What are you streaming? TV, music? Uh, we have Netflix, and so um, we stream a lot of things through that. Um, I like, uh, I'm a sucker for Scandinavian dramas, all these dark, really bleak dramas where someone, some poor soul's been murdered somewhere and someone's trying to find out who did it. So any of those, that tends to be what's going through. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that genre. Give me a name or two to check out. The Killing, which okay. you had, which you had uh, translated into the American. They, they made their own version. 
Um, I mean, there's uh, Borgen, there's the Bridge, um, a few of those. Um, they're, they're the sort of go-to things. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? I went, the first football match I ever went to was when I was seven. And my dad used to get invited to these finals through companies he worked with. So he took me along once to the 1980 League Cup final between Liverpool and West Ham. And we lived about an hour, probably an hour and a quarter away from West Ham. But Liverpool were the best team in the country by a mile at that stage. And I was already a big Liverpool fan and I loved all their players. So we went to this uh, lunch before the final and it was in a, in a hotel in London on Park Lane in London. And high up somewhere on whatever floor it was, I had a giant, what I thought was a giant burger. And I can still taste that. And I can still see Liverpool's goal that day. It was a 1-1 draw. Liverpool won the replay 2-1. Um, but that was an amazing day. And that's probably my favourite sporting memory personally. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Bjorn Borg on screen at Wimbledon, I thought he was a king because he had like a mane. I thought it was actually a king playing tennis. And then when John McEnroe came along, I was uh, obsessed by him and watched pretty much all of his stuff. Have you had the chance then to meet Borg and McEnroe? I've, I've met McEnroe a few times, yeah. Um, had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, with a few people here and there. Um, Borg, I have never met, and he was—he is one I would love to meet. Um, I, you know, the film actually—if that's—that's a good film to stream if you ever get a chance. Borg, Borg McEnroe, that's excellent, and the guy who played Borg was phenomenal. My last question for you: Do you collect your credentials, and if so, where is that collection? You know, I don't really. I, I know a lot of a lot of sports journalists do keep all of those. My wife does um, a lot. I'm probably the majority would, but I don't. I tend to sort of clean out my bag and just chuck them in the bin, which is probably I will regret one day because when you cover Olympics or big events and you can they they spark memories. You hear about other people sort of saying, "Oh, I've I found a tro treasure trove in the attic of my grandfather's blah blah." blah. I think yeah, maybe that would be something that I should have kept them for. So. <laughs> Maybe I'll try and find some more and keep them together. <laughs> well, Simon, I appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on and uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too. Thank you. Simon does not really do justice to what happened during that Liverpool-West Ham League Cup final. Make sure to check out that video clip in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. I'll also recommend the One Day in July video, which captures the simultaneous drama that was unfolding across London in the summer of 2019 with the Wimbledon Gentlemen's Championship and the Cricket World Cup Final. Special thanks to Mike Michet for editing Credentials Only. And thank you for checking out this episode. Let me know what you thought by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please also give us a follow on your favorite social media channels. And head over to credentialsonly.com to drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share.